Good evening, church. Merry Christmas. Man, I am still struck by that kids' performance. I was telling a few people before the service um, that I think that all of the previous year kids' performance was about 60 seconds max. And uh, when uh, Miss Contini, uh, Elizabeth, comes to me about a month ago and she's like, I want to do a kids' performance, it's really simple, it's very basic, it's 10 minutes long. I'm like, Really, she's a, a drama teacher, and she hosts huge performance, and I was like, whatever you want to do, go for it. I was so amazed. The kids have been pouring their time into this over the past several months, and what a blessing for us as a church, both for the families, but also for all of us together just to see our kids act out the story of Christmas and learn the gospel each and every Sunday night. There's no greater joy for a parent than to know that our kids every Sunday night are hearing about Jesus and they're being cared for. And so I just want to say thank you to everyone here that volunteers in the kids' ministry. And I want to encourage you after service to give a big thank you to Miss Contini uh, for all of her time serving and caring for our kids. Amen? Well, I had a couple people text me during the kids' performance as well. And they said, 100% I wrote those jokes. I did not, but I'm going to keep them because if you know me, I love a good dad joke. I'm going to steal them. I'm going to use them. I really like the Adam, hey, says to Eve, it's Christmas Eve. That was great. That killed me. That was amazing. You know, tonight we begin episode three of our Advent series titled Arrival, where we're looking at the Christmas story. We're looking at the story that was just performed before us the one that Brian read through Luke chapter 2. That's going to be our passage tonight. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there, Luke chapter 2. If you have the Crossbridge Brickle app, click on the notes icon. The passage is there and other notes, and it'll also be on the screen behind me. But I want to kind of set this up to, to call you to think about the stories of kings. All throughout history, there are stories about the arrival of a king and the rise of a king. Not just in history, but written in fiction, right? So much of literature is about a king. The arrival of the king, the establishment of the king, the rise of the king, the power of the king. And so many of the stories throughout history and in the novels that we read speak of a king that has certain things attached to him and his reign. For instance, one of the things that you find often with a king is a palace. Kings live in palaces, so many times the stories, this is both real in history and in the stories that we read, when a king arrives and is established and is beginning to rise to power, the palace that is there is not good enough. They have to make a new palace that's better than the old palace. We see that even in archaeology of multiple palaces being built or added upon because the king needs to have the biggest and the best palace. There's always the throne room where the king makes his judgments where people will come before the king and ask for favors, beautifully adorned. The king is always wearing vestments, all types of beautiful clothes and a staff or a sword or a crown. The king is also untouchable. There are multiple layers that protect the king from anyone that want, would want to harm the king. There are soldiers. There's a cupbearer that will drink the wine before the king drinks it to make sure that it's not poisoned. The cupbearer will die and not the king. There's multiple layers of protection for a king. is untouchable. And then the king has power. 
And oftentimes, the greatest power that a king has is the power to ignite fear in people. Fear of what the king may do. Fear of what judgments or decrees the king might make. Literally, the king, in many cases, holds the balance of life in people's, in his hands. His judgments can start life or end life for people. This is so much of the story of kings all throughout history, spanning cultures, spanning time periods. And yet, there's only one manger, there's only one Bethlehem, there's only one Christmas, there's only one nativity, there's only one Jesus, a very different king, a king of kings. All throughout scripture, we see that the Messiah, the Savior, is called the King of Kings. Now, in our expectation, we would think that if the King of Kings has arrived, it would be above everything that's ever happened before. The biggest palace, the biggest throne room, the greatest crown investments, more untouchable than you could ever imagine. So much power that people are afraid to even come into his presence for fear of what he may do. And yet, the story of Christmas is the exact opposite. And so many stories about kings have kind of come out of this story of Christmas, of a humble king, born in lowly places, to a poor family, overlooked and overshadowed until he's established in power. It's very different. It's completely unique from the other stories of a king. In fact, it's so powerful that the most celebrated, adored holiday in the entire world is Christmas. It's celebrated everywhere by multiple people, by multiple cultures, and it's about a humble king who was born to overlooked and overshadowed parents that were poor from a town that nobody thought anything good could come from and a city that nobody thought a king would be born in again. Yeah, this is the story of Christmas. It's a story that we're going to look at this evening, and I think that when you look at the story of Christmas and the arrival of Jesus with fresh eyes and we try to strip off some of the desensitizing that's happened to us because we've heard it so many times, Christmas happens every year, what we're going to see is that it's amazing. The title of this sermon is, Now That's Amazing. The Christmas story is, in fact, amazing when you really look at it and don't just assume that you know it because you've heard it for most of your life. Now, I want to set a few things up so we can really grasp how amazing this story is, so we can understand the characters in our passage in Luke chapter 2. Now, first, we've got to talk about the shepherds. Who are shepherds? Who were shepherds in the first century? A couple things you need to know about shepherds. One, they're ordinary people. This is a common profession. This is not a career path that people want. This is not desired. Really, it's passed down. Families were shepherding families. They would pass down this career, if you will, to their children. It was very common. It was ordinary. It was a hard life because shepherds lived out in the fields. They lived outside. And we kind of romanticize, you know, sleeping under the stars and how beautiful that may have been. I mean, sure, there were nights like that, but then there's also storms and there's also thieves and there's also all types of things that happen when you're living outdoors and following around sheep as they graze, protecting them because they are your source of income. It was an ordinary job. It was a common job, but it was a hard job. But shepherds were not only ordinary, they were also negatively labeled. 
They had so many negative labels. Like, it was like you had an ordinary job, and then everyone despised you. It was not good. Aristotle said that shepherds, the philosopher, he said that shepherds were lazy people. Now, I don't think of shepherds as lazy because they're living outside, chasing around sheep. But that's how people felt. Like, they're just living outside. These are people that are on the margins of society. They're lazy people. They don't really want anything for their life. They're not really trying to build anything. They're just kind of following around sheep. But it wasn't just that people thought they were lazy. It was also they thought they were scoundrels or thieves. They said that shepherds lived kind of on the edge of morality. Because there were many times that shepherds to make ends meet would steal or be engaged in some kind of shady practices and businesses. And so there's a label placed upon them. In fact, they were treated as unclean in the Jewish society, meaning that they were not righteous. They had to clean themselves up. They couldn't go to the temple and approach God because of their lifestyle and their behavior. In fact, shepherds were not allowed to give testimony in court because they were treated and viewed as unreliable. These are the labels, okay? So they're ordinary people that have negative labels on their life. That's who shepherds are. And then angels, as I said last week, are just messengers of God. One of the primary ways that God communicates to his people, as we've seen all throughout scripture, is through angels. They speak the words of God to his people. So we have shepherds, ordinary people with negative labels, and then we have an angel who's a messenger speaking God's words to them. We're going to pick up in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Here's what it says. Now there were shepherds, now you know who they are, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Can you understand why they were terrified? Angels are messengers of God. Shepherds are ordinary scoundrels. So what do you think they're assuming the angels are going to say? I like to imagine them sitting out maybe by a fire at night, and the angel shows up, and they start to hide all of the things they've stolen, the things they're drinking, and they're like, hey, what's going on, you know? They're thinking judgment's coming because they're shepherds, and this is an angel speaking God's words. To them. But the angel, perceiving this, right, said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. That's a relief. That will cause great joy for all the people. Now, this had to have been another level of shock. Okay, like it's a relief. The angels have come. It's not judgment. It's good news. But it's not only good news for us, but it's good news that will be great joy. For all the people? They had to have been thinking, why in the world would an angel be coming to us, ordinary scoundrels, with good news for all people? I mean, people don't even want to hear what we have to say. We're we're unreliable. This is like a Fortune 500 company who has a major technological breakthrough that's going to change the world. And the CEO decides to send a representative to break the news about this game-changing technology to an auto mechanic who runs a sketchy business out of the back of the garage at night. That's like the equivalent here. An ordinary job, and yet some of people kind of engage in some shady practices. An angel coming to the shepherds? 
with good news that's great joy for all the people? Here's the news. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. What? See, the shepherds are Jewish. They understand the prophesied Messiah. They've read Micah, as we read in episode one of our series. They've read Isaiah. They've read the prophets speaking about the Messiah, the Savior who would come, the King of kings, the Son of God. And so the the message is, in the town of David, that's Bethlehem, this like town, like right over there, they're in the fields outside of Bethlehem, over there in that little town, there's a Savior born. And, and the, the angel clarifies it. Like, just so you know, the Messiah. Not just any Savior, not just any great leader, any great king. No, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born over there. And this is not just a message that the angel's bringing to the shepherds, but a directive, a command. Ready? Here's the next verse. This will be a sign to you, verse 12. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. See, the understanding that is being given, the directive that is being given to the shepherds is like, the Savior, the Messiah, is born in Bethlehem, like tonight, and you're going to go see him. Because I'm telling you exactly where you can find him. Wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Like, they have to be thinking at this point, like, I think the angel got the wrong people. Like, Jerusalem is just a few miles that way. That's where the priests are, the religious people, the holy people, the righteous. Like, that's the place. I don't know. Angel, we're shepherds. (laughs) Ordinary, not reliable. Some people say lazy. We disagree, you know. Like, why are you telling us this? Why are you commanding us to go? There has to be. So many doubts and questions filling their minds. And I believe that's why what happens next was to strip them of the doubt and to charge them to actually follow the angel's directive, which is to go to Bethlehem and find the baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Here's what it says. So they know this, is, this message and directive is not on accident. It's not the wrong people. Verse 13 and 14. Suddenly... A great company of heavenly hosts, that's angels. So this is like an angel choir, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's almost like in this moment when they're like thinking through all the things that they're processing, the doubts, like the angels here. It's great news for good, for joy for all people. The Savior's born in Bethlehem, and we're supposed to go see the Savior who's wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. That's weird. The manger, this is a feeding trough. And then all of they're processing this, and the angel just jumps out with a whole choir behind, praising God, glorifying God, and telling them that God's favor rests on them. That God's favor rests on them, the ordinary, the outcast. This obviously ignited something in them. I like to think of this moment 
being like a hundred times, a thousand times, a million probably times, those moments in my life where I've had these unique experiences with God. Have you had those experiences? Those moments where you're, you're so close to the presence of God, you experience God's glory. The word glory means weight, the weight of God. And if you've had those moments and if you've been before the presence of God in that way where the weight of God is upon you, what does it do? It fills you. It moves you. It motivates you. It, it calls you forward. You can't just like sit there and go home and, and just exist. You have to do something. God calls you and he moves you and he challenges you. And that's like a thousand times because this is a choir of angels that are telling these shepherds that God's favor is upon them. They're glorifying God. And so look what happens. Verse 15. When the angels had left them, they sat for the whole concert, guys, and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, the only thing they could have said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So now they recognize that it's not just that the angels were giving them this message and directive. It's not just the angels had this like choir, this performance before them, praising God and telling them that God's favor rests upon them. It's that the Lord was speaking to them. Like God is telling us this message through the angels because they're messengers of God. And we need to believe what God says and we need to follow what God says. So we need to go find the baby wrapped in cloth lying in a manger in Bethlehem. We had different plans for tonight, but this is what we're doing. There's no other option because the message they expected to be a message of judgment was a message of joy. So they wholeheartedly pursue it. It says in verse 16 and through 18, they hurried off. So they just went and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. You know that the shepherds, these ordinary outcasts, were the first evangelists? You see that? The very first people, after Jesus arrives, after Jesus is born, to go tell people that the Messiah has been born, that there's great joy for all people, that the, the Savior who will bring salvation, the King of Kings, has arrived. The very first evangelists are shepherds. Unreliable. Some people say lazy. Maybe thieves. Outcasts, certainly. Ordinary common people. The first evangelists of the gospel. Because it says that after they saw Jesus, they met Mary and Joseph they immediately go and start telling people, and people are amazed. When they hear the Christmas story, they say, now that's amazing. I imagine it goes something like this. The shepherds leave, and they probably first go to family and friends, like right away. We got to go tell our family and friends. And so they come up to their family or their friends and say, listen, we, we got to tell you something. You're never going to believe what happened. What's going on? Okay, so like, we were out in the fields, just kind of hanging out like normal, and out of nowhere, an angel showed up. Yeah, I know, crazy. An angel showed up, 
And we were like really nervous because we're shepherds. And we thought it was going to be judgment. But then the angel said something wild. The angel said, don't be afraid. I'm going to give you a message. And the message is for the joy of all people. And so we were skeptical. We're like, wait, what's going on? What is the message of joy for all people? And then the angel says this. Ready? The angel says, the Savior, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Messiah, like the Lord, was born in Bethlehem, like the city right where we're near. And uh, we were kind of taken aback. And then the angel said, "The, the baby is lying in a feeding trough, like a, a manger, you know, and wrapped in cloth. I know it's like, it sounds insane. Born as a baby, the Messiah in a feeding trough. And then the angels started singing, like it was like a whole choir, and they were praising God. And they, they told us, we never thought this our whole lives. They said that God's favor rests upon us, and we felt it. His presence, his weight, his glory. And so we didn't just hear the message, but we actually did what the angel said. The angel told us to go. And so we went to Bethlehem, and we found the, the baby who, who's the Lord. And, and get this, ready? You're gonna, this is like insane. Not only was the, was the Savior not born in Jerusalem, which we all expected, the Savior was born in Bethlehem, but the family, like Mary and Joseph, that's the mom and dad, by the way. They, they're really poor, and they're from Nazareth. They didn't have any money. They couldn't find anywhere to stay. So the baby was born in a stable, in a cave around livestock. Wild, right? And Ready? It's going to get even more wild. Joseph's not the father. <laughs> Mary was a virgin, and the Holy Spirit conceived the child in Mary... Because this isn't any child. It's not any king. This isn't any quote-unquote savior. It's, it's the Messiah. And we, we met him. And we just had to tell people. And so we're telling you. And you need to, you need to hear it. <laughs> it's not what we expected at all. But it's amazing. And it's true. See, that, that's, I think that I, that's how I feel the message went. Because th- this is not like a perfectly crafted outline. It doesn't say that they ran off, they got their thoughts together, they, re- they kind of established this really powerful outline because they knew the story was like wild. And then they went in strategically, told different, no, they just literally went and started telling people. And they knew that their testimony was going to be viewed as unreliable because they can't even testify in court. But they didn't care. They were so changed. It was so powerful. They were so impressed by Jesus that they had to go tell everyone they knew. And when they told, just out of their passion, not with some perfectly crafted, organized, they didn't have all their theology right. They were certainly not superior in terms of like how people viewed them spiritually. They were treated as unclean. They didn't have any of that together. They just went and told passionately what they experienced and what they believed is true, that the Savior is born, and they impressed that upon other people, and people responded by saying, that's amazing. You know, friends, when you just communicate 
Jesus out of passion because you're impressed by him, because he has changed you, because you have felt the weight of God's presence upon you, and the only response is to go tell people about it. Guess what the response is when you do that? Now, that's amazing. You don't have to have everything perfectly crafted together. It can be helpful to go through different classes and to learn things, but we're shepherds. We just go and we share, and the message itself is amazing. We don't have to be amazing. The message is amazing. The birth of Jesus is so surprising, so unexpected. It's not like any other king that arrived and was established and rose to power. It's completely unique. And and we need to work hard to step into that. To not just assume that we know the Christmas story because we've heard it. I, I want you to consider something. Jesus, the King of Kings, the Son of God, the Lord, the Savior, the prophesied one for thousands of years, arrives with no marketing campaign, no million dollar shekel initiative. There's no work in the streets preparing everyone. There's no primetime slots taken at all the Jerusalem events to get everybody ready. None of that. In the middle of the night to a poor family in a cave placed in a manger with the very first people to meet Jesus being shepherds, the ordinary outcast, who become the evangelist. That's how Jesus arrives. So here's the question. This surprising, shocking arrival for the Son of God, the King of Kings. If we step into that and we really feel that, we need to allow it to teach us something. I want to look at two things very briefly. When we step into the surprising nature of the Christmas story, the arrival of Jesus, what does it teach us first about the growth of the church? Church growth strategies, if you will. What does it teach us about that? Does it teach us, does it mean that the church should never use marketing or social media or advertising campaigns? The church should just be silent and quiet, like in the middle of the night, like a little town of Bethlehem. Is that what it means? Is that what's being taught? No, I don't think so. I think God gives us everything before us to use for his glory and for the advancement of his good news. However, it does teach us that we should not rely upon those things as the major means of the proclamation of the good news. They can be part of it. They can help in the process. But it teaches us something very important. Ready? That the chief proclamation of the gospel is done through ordinary outcasts. It is done through ordinary outcasts. People without all the theology right, people that maybe have assumed negative labels in their life, people that feel common, that just want to go share the good news that is for great joy for all people because they've experienced the joy and they need to tell other people about it too. Because how selfish to not. That is how the church grows. It's what the church is built upon. That's why the very first evangelists are ordinary outcasts. Because it's how we proclaim the good news. Now, herein lies the problem in the church. In particular, I think, in the church in America. We have relied too heavily 
on strategies to gather a crowd. We have. I'm not putting this on you. I'm like putting this on me and everybody that is in the same kind of place as me. We've relied too heavily on finding all of these helpful strategies to gather a crowd. We've pulled people in through all of these marketing campaigns and all of these different things. And what's happened is that it's, it's created something. And maybe you feel this, okay? Here's what it's created. The growth of the church, the proclamation of the gospel, the advancement of the kingdom of God in the city is primarily done through the professional Christians. It's the pastors and the staff and the people that that's their full-time job. They think about the outreach events. They create the initiatives. They do most of the stuff. They think about how to, you know, get the word out and grow the church. And they focus on that while I can focus on growing my life and my career and my relationships and all that. So I come to church and they set it all up and they make it happen. And then I go out of the church. Is that not true? It's true. It's like a machine we've created and we don't know how to break the machine. We know it's not working because what you win people to, what you win people with, you win them to. Do you know that? So if you win people with marketing and performance and you win people with very little ask of them, that's what you hold them with. So here's what happens. Here's what we see, right? Here's, here's the trend. If you don't know, here's the trend. If you win with marketing, you win with crowd, you win with performance, you win, you win with everything kind of working perfectly well-run machine, all the great programs with very little ask upon the people. If you try to change that, if the performance of the programs decrease or there's more asked of you, the, the, the trend is, you leave, and I'm not talking about you, I'm just talking about in general, the universal you. You leave and go find somewhere that won't do that. Better performance, better production, won't ask anything of you, which is why big churches get bigger because you can go and you can hide. That's the truth. What you win people to, you win them with. This is the problem that we have. We've created this. We've been a part of this. And it's created a very unhelpful culture in the church. And it's completely opposite of what we see in the Christmas story. Here's what we see. That we are to win people with the message of Jesus through ordinary people, even outcasts. Even outcasts. Ordinary people just proclaiming Jesus off their lips. Proclaiming the message of Jesus. Now, I'm not against Excellence. I think our God is excellent, and so we should do things with excellence. We should use our talents and our time excellently. And so every part of the church should be excellent, from Sunday service to the programs that we have, to our small groups, to the different things that we put forth. We should strive for that. We should have excellent social media to represent who we are. I'm not against any of these things, but what I'm saying is they are not the pinnacle. It's not how the church grows. It's not what the Christmas story teaches us. It teaches us that the evangelists are not professional. They're ordinary people and outcasts. In fact, what we read here is that the shepherds don't change their life. They don't Meet Jesus, and then it's like, okay, well, you got to stop being shepherds now. You got to become priests, or you got to, you know, you got to take up a different kind of career. No, they go back to being shepherds. 
The church has grown and built upon ordinary people and outcasts because Jesus came for ordinary outcasts. That's how Jesus was treated. It's who he identifies with. It's how we are to grow through people like you and me. You may say, I'm not ordinary, and I'm not an outcast. But you are. You're, we are all ordinary. None of us are spiritually superior. We are not. And all of us are outcasts before God. We are not deserving of his grace. And yet he uses us. The church grows through us. We have removed you from the equation in this machine of church. And it's not okay. It's not what Christmas teaches us. The church is built upon ordinary outcasts. And we are to win people by proclaiming Jesus by uplifting the ordinary and dignifying the outcast, because that is what Jesus does. And that is amazing. It's amazing. Here's the last thing. How does the arrival of Jesus change what we value? Or what you value? How does Jesus' arrival, the Christmas story, change what you value? Can you value your career, and can you value the life that you're building? Yes, of course, and you should. God's given it to you. He's given you the time, talent, the opportunities, the expertise. You should value your career and the life that you're building. It is part of your purpose is wrapped up in that. You should value it. But here's the thing. You should value it differently than you did before you met Jesus. The shepherds go back to shepherding, but they go back different. With a different message, a different priority, and a different purpose. Verse 20 says this, they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. They went back to shepherding, but they went back different with the message of Jesus that they had to tell everybody. And they were glorifying God and praising God for all they've seen and heard because it was just as they were told. See, the arrival of Jesus teaches us that nothing matters more than Jesus. Do you believe that? That nothing, nothing matters more than Jesus. That he is, in fact, the great joy for all people. That he is greater joy than anything you could ever accomplish in this life. He is greater joy than anything in your career, in any relationship, in any social circle, than any experience will ever benefit you. He is of greater joy. Do you believe that? See, here's the thing. I, I, if that's true, that we believe that, that Jesus is the great joy greater than anything, then what we should value above everything is proclaiming Jesus, is telling people about him. And herein lies the last problem I see. Some of us are so familiar with Jesus, we're no longer impressed by him. Some of us are so familiar with Jesus, we're no longer impressed by him. And because we're not impressed by him, we don't talk about him. See, here's the thing. All of us in this room, we share what impresses us. So much of social media is built upon sharing impressive things, right? I know we're all doing it. We're sharing memes. We're sharing shorts of like funny sketches or impressive things. 
I don't know if you guys have seen this Red Bull thing where they like ride their, their mountain bikes and it looks like they're going to die every second. Like I'm always sharing it. It's unbelievable. It's so impressive. We share what impresses us. I love to share music when it impresses me. So much of our conversation is built around telling other people the things that impress us. Shows, restaurants, experiences, articles, career developments, whatever it is, we share what impresses us. It's our natural human tendency to share what impresses us. And so here is the challenging question, okay? If I'm not sharing Jesus, does he impress me? Does he impress me? Because we share what impresses us. Have we become so familiar with Jesus that I don't share him because he doesn't impress me the same way he did? So the question is, how do I get back to the place where the shepherds were? Glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. How do I get back to recognizing myself for who I really am? Ordinary, not spiritually superior, and an outcast, not deserving of God's grace. We realize why Jesus came. He came for us. We're shepherds. We are shepherds, ordinary and outcast. And yet God has come for shepherds. He has organized a spectacle of grace. My challenge to you, friends, is to step into Christmas a little different this year. To try to strip away some of the desensitizing that we've had. It's just natural for us each and every year. It builds a layer, layer, layer of being desensitized to this message. And we would just feel the weight of God's glory, of how Jesus arrived, how unique and spectacular it is, how amazing it is that the King of Kings, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, was born in this manner to identify with people like us so that he might one day die for us and be buried and raised from the dead for us and then look at you and me and say, I'm building my church upon you. How impressive is that? That Jesus uses us. He builds his church upon us. We, are, we should ask God, a very simple prayer, ready? God, would you impress me with who you are again? Would you put the weight of your glory before me again? Would you help me to see myself for who I really am? Would I really believe that you are the greatest joy above everything else that I seek for joy? And would you change me then, God? Help direct my steps to share with other people about you. I don't have to have it all together. I don't have to have this perfectly crafted outline. I can kind of share like the shepherds. Like, hey, I know this sounds wild, but here's what I believe is true, and I want you to hear it because it's great joy for you. Would we be impressed by Jesus again? And proclaim him this Christmas season to our family, to our friends, to our coworkers, to anyone that would hear. Because the message of Christmas is not just great joy for you, it's great joy for all people. Amen?